Support for Innovation Hub comes from Bunker Hill Community College Compelling Conversation Series with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Religious Intolerance, October 26th. You can register at bhcc.edu slash cc. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the mid-1960s, a chemist was trying to figure out how to develop a drug that would do a better job of treating ulcers. And in the middle of his experiments, he licked his finger, as many of us do, to try to get better hold of a piece of paper. But what he tasted was really strange. Something on his finger was so sweet. The substance became known as aspartame, 200 times sweeter than sugar. One of the first big deal sweeteners, saccharin, had been discovered almost a century before. But aspartame, which went on to be marketed under the name brand NutraSweet, was a blockbuster. And it's now in all sorts of things, jams and puddings and drinks, cereals, gums, the list keeps going on. And aspartame came along at an almost perfect moment, a moment when Americans were worrying more and more about their weight. At first, fat seemed like the enemy, but increasingly, the enemy has seemed to be sugar. And to combat it, we've turned to artificial sweeteners. 40% of adults, 25% of kids report consuming artificial sweeteners. Um, That's an increasing trend, so these surveys are repeated every few years, and so we know that the trend is on the increase. Megan Azad is the lead author of a new study looking at how artificial sweeteners affect our health and whether grabbing a diet drink every now and again might help. She says that one thing to know right off the bat is that if you don't think that you consume artificial sweeteners, you might be wrong. Even people who don't report consuming these products have detectable levels of artificial sweeteners in their blood or urine. Um, And that's, I don't think they're being dishonest on the surveys, but it's a reflection that many of us are consuming these products without knowing it. So they're not only in diet sodas or the little packets that we put in our coffee and tea. They're also increasingly used in a lot of foods. So things like yogurts, um, salad dressing, pasta sauce. So we're consuming them more than we probably even know. Azad is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Child Health at the University of Manitoba. And what she and her colleagues found was surprising. As Americans have become more concerned about high-calorie sugar and turned to low or no-calorie sweeteners, it has not helped us lose weight. People who use artificial sweeteners, Azad found, experience weight gain. They have increased incidence of obesity and hypertension, diabetes, heart problems. But how could it be that if you're stripping a whole bunch of sugar out of your diet, there's no benefit? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and there's some interesting um, theories. So one of them, you mentioned stripping the sugar out of our diet. One possibility is that we're not actually doing that, right? So we're we're drinking diet sodas, but then we're eating ice cream and cake and pizza. And there is some evidence for that, that people feel a permission since they save their calories on the beverages, they could go um, eat other food. There are other possible ways that artificial sweeteners might be doing strange things to us. And this is where it gets really interesting. One has to do with your gut bacteria. So those are those little critters who hang out inside you and help you digest your food. So depending on the the particular mixture of gut bacteria a person has, um, that will partially determine how many calories they actually extract from the food they're consuming. So this is why two people consuming the same diet might lose or gain different amounts of weight because they have different gut microbiomes. And so there's some evidence, at least in rats, that artificial sweeteners shift the microbiome in a way that predisposes um, the person to gain more weight. The final possibility may be the most interesting and weirdest of all, and it's the possibility that our body thinks Fake sugar is real sugar, and it presses all of our buttons accordingly.
we have evolved as a species over millions of years to react in particular ways to sugar. Um, so we set off certain hormone signaling pathways when we eat sugar. And those pathways are not only triggered by the calories in the sugar, but actually in many cases triggered by the perception of sweet taste. So with an artificial sweetener, you still get that perception of sweet taste um, and your, your body's tricked because then you have no sugar calories to metabolize. So there's a theory that if you do this um, repeatedly, continuously, year after year, that you might actually reset your metabolism in a way um, that's setting you up for more weight gain. Really? So your brain is responding like this is sugar. Right. And somehow that's doing something funky to your body. Uh, essentially, you think you're tricking your body, but you can't trick it. Yeah, the trick's on you maybe, right? In rodent studies, scientists are starting to get some clues as to what might be happening in people. Though, of course, rodents are not people. And so there have been some experiments where they provide the artificial sweeteners to mice or rats that are pregnant and then look for effects in the offspring. Um, and they've detected that the offspring of these um, pregnant mice consuming the artificial sweeteners are more likely to become um, obese as they grow up into adults. And they're also more likely, even though they themselves were never exposed to the sweeteners, um, when they become adults, if they're given the choice, they'll go for the Fruit Loops. Um, it's the Fruit Loops study um, rather than the regular mouse chow. So they've been sort of hardwired to like sweet things because of this exposure in utero. Azad says before her work studying sugar substitutes, she used to use them every day in her tea. But that was then. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I just put milk in my tea. Um, and I, when I have time to bake, I just kind of cut the sugar in half because uh, a lot of recipes are too sweet anyways. Megan Azad is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Child Health at the University of Manitoba. By the way, she's now in the midst of tracking 3,500 women, human women, who she started looking at during pregnancy, and she's now following them to see what happens to their kids. She says that so far, the moms who drink artificially sweetened drinks do not seem to be consuming fewer overall calories than mothers who have not consumed artificial sweeteners. An industry lobbying group that supports artificial sweeteners, the Calorie Control Council, says that they still believe that these sweeteners are a good way to help control your weight. We've got their response to Azad's study, as well as the study itself, on our website, innovationhub.org. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. About a decade ago, Carolyn Thomas was having breakfast at a place that I've always wanted to have breakfast at, Café du Monde in New Orleans. And pretty much everyone was having, which I have at Café du Monde, coffee and pillowy square beignets. They bring them to you right out of the fryer, so I'm told, and they're topped with a pile of powdered sugar. And Thomas was watching the scene around her, and she noticed something odd. To put in their coffee, people were requesting those small pink and yellow and blue packets from the waiters. Thomas, who's a professor of American studies and a vice provost at the University of California, Davis, thought, this is a strange juxtaposition, piles of sugar for breakfast and sugar substitute in your coffee. And she began to wonder and to investigate how these sugar substitutes captured our imagination 
and what these little packets tell us about ourselves. She ended up writing the book Empty Pleasures, the story of artificial sweeteners from saccharin to Splenda. And she found that in post-war America, when consumerism was on the rise and people felt like better living through chemistry was really possible, people began to embrace fake sugar. Before World War II, though, people wanted their sugar. And they would not settle for substitutes. Artificial sweeteners had first been used in the American food supply kind of as a secret. They were developed in the 1870s. They were first used in carbonated beverages because per part, saccharin, that was the first one, was cheaper Mm -hmm. than sugar. So it was a good Mm -hmm. substitute. But they got caught up in the pure food and drug controversies of the progressive era. And when many Americans found out that this coal tar derivative, this substitute for healthful sugar was in their sodas, they rebelled. So soda manufacturers were <laughs> the really... opposite of what you think. Wait, what? This is a diet soda? That's not acceptable. Exactly. I want my right. sugar, right? Right, right, right. And so the soda companies were, were pretty gun shy to get back into this marketplace because they'd taken a hit. Hmm. But the canners didn't have that same experience. So uh, I tell the story in the book about Abbott Pharmaceuticals in Chicago um, reaching out at a kind of a food technology conference to um, some canning companies and Hmm. offering them some free product. And they had market research that showed that American women were increasingly concerned about weight Hmm. So they kind of gave them the paint-by-numbers version right. of how right. to build a marketplace. And hmm. and it was kind of like they could be at the, at the beginning of the future. The future of food was that you wouldn't be tied down through calories, and it would be helpful for Americans. Hmm. And think about all those canned peaches sitting on the right. shelves, right? Canned fruits and peaches. People can buy fresh now with new supermarkets. So... Canner saw that there was a a chance for them to sell more, but I also think a chance for them to be, to see themselves as innovators and partners with pharmaceutical companies. And this is after World War II. Remember, innovation was kind of embodied in the future of what chemistry and pharmaceuticals Hmm. would bring. Right. It's interesting that you talk about the calorie thing, because I think that's such a... I mean, it's obviously a big part of, like, why you use artificial sweeteners in your coffee versus sugar in your coffee. But it is also true that when you get into the 50s and people are consuming more and they want to have more stuff and they, you know, you know, they might want to buy 50 pairs of shoes, let's say, you can't eat 50 meals a day. Like, you cannot... You, you can't scale up in the same way that you can go from having two pairs of shoes to 10 pairs of shoes if you make more money. You can't be like, well, I used to eat three meals a day, but now I eat 10, right? So, but, but one thing you can do is I guess you can eat more food if the food has fewer calories, like each time you eat it. Right. So there's all kinds of opportunities to be consuming food throughout the day if the food doesn't have calories in it. Right, right. Right, which is sort of the functional foundation of food to deliver calories and energy. There was actually a, a meeting of um, kind of the, the, the leading marketers of artificial sweeteners in the 1960s, and they they invited women's magazine editors and uh, supermarket execs and uh, food manufacturers to come, and they served a whole meal, all of it, from, you know, the, the hors d'oeuvres to the desserts, all of it with artificial sweetener, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like, can you believe there's only 500 calories in this meal? 
And they delivered, there was a kind of a keynote speech. And the keynote speech talked about how there was this condition of prosperity stomach. That's what Americans were suffering from, prosperity stomach. There's so much good stuff to eat. And, of course, people want to have it all the time. But what are you going to do about that prosperity stomach that keeps growing? Here's the answer, right? Mm. Diet, food. So do you feel like, in a way, the the role of the first people who were marketing artificial sweeteners to you was to convince you to eat more? Yeah, you can fit in more. And, and um, I think the story of Tilly Lewis is just one of my favorites. Tilly Lewis was a a tomato canner. And Tilly was the first one, as far as I can tell, who actually figured out how to manufacture the product in her plant and brand it with a marketing message. And Tilly Lewis had this brand of, you know, diet fruits and diet dressings and diet puddings. And and she went around the country talking to women's page editors, right, from different newspapers. And they ran these stories, and they called it the Tasty Diet 21-Day Plan. And that was basically her message. She said, you know what? She had problems. Mm. She loved to eat. Doctors had told her to just do without. And she said, you know what? I don't have to, yeah. I figured out the chemistry, which, of course, she didn't. Her chemist figured it out. But I've now created the food that means you don't have to have restraint. You can have it all because I'm a woman and I understand, and I've, I've given you a diet with pleasure. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Carolyn Thomas, author of the book, Empty Pleasures, the story of artificial sweeteners from saccharin to Splenda. Was it initially hard to sell people on the idea of transitioning away from a food that was real, came from a plant, they'd always known it, their parents knew it, to something that like came from a lab? It was. I. It helped that there was a war and it helped that sugar was hard to come by. So it, I think it took that experience of rationing sugar. Sugar was the first product to be rationed during the war. It was the last product to stop being rationed. Hmm. And I did some research on the use of artificial sweetener um, during World War II in the 50s, in the early 50s, before there was like a marketed product on the shelf. And you can see that women start to use the little tablets, those little, some people might remember from their grandmothers, you know, those little tiny white pills. And they became a favorite hostess gift, which I think mm. surprises a lot of people. So there was that experimentation in the home. Women couldn't get sugar easily. And if they did, they needed to put it in a baked good for their child, right, or give it to their husbands, right. save it right. for the soldier, so some of the experimentation that helped artificial sweetener improve its image came from women really going out mm. and seeing, you know, what can I have for me? Right. Is there like a campaign, a marketing campaign that jumps out to you that was marketing uh, sugar substitutes that just makes you think like this was a really interesting or, or an emblematic approach to marketing these kinds of products? Well, I think that has to be NutraSweet. Some may remember in the early 1980s opening the their mailbox and getting a little set of three gumballs and a stapled to a, a piece of paper. Last year, over two million people got their first taste of NutraSweet. In of all things, a gumball. What's NutraSweet? It's a sweetening ingredient that isn't fattening, isn't artificial like saccharin, tastes just like sugar, and sounds just too good to be true. This is a Nutra sweet and combined with a little kind of red and white swirl, right? And it, that was for children. 
I was a child. I opened that up and ate those gumballs. <laughs> and I brought it in, and my mom found it when she came home. And I was like, yum, this is great. So the professional team that got both FDA approval for NutraSweet and marketed it massively, not as a diet product, not for limited use, but actually this was the nutritious sweet. And as they would say, nature didn't make this, but it's what nature intended. That message that we've finally made the sweet that your body wants, yeah, that ad changed the world. Did the pharmaceutical companies or the food companies ever have any concerns that, um, you know, maybe these products were not super well tested or they could have downsides that we didn't know about? The first diet food that was marketed widely was something called Diet Delight. And uh, it used sodium cyclamate, which was uh, sucral. And they, over the 20-year period between the early 1950s and then uh, 1969, they had lots of doubts. And you can see that the doubt that the chief technologist expresses, you know, really comes up about every couple of years. Like, how do I know that this is, is this really okay? Right? And he's provided with research that's being done by Abbott Pharmaceuticals that's letting him know, yeah, here's all these different trials and, you know, here's these results. So that doubt was really kind of kept at bay. And at the same time, his name was Ed Mitchell. He was encouraged to go and talk to to the FDA to mm-hmm. explain to them that he'd been using this for years in Diet Delight and that, you know, this this was something that had value to him and, and the fruit growers and it should be something more widely distributed in the marketplace. And I think the irony is in 1969 when uh, the government actually did declare that sodium cyclamate was unsafe right, and took right. it off the shelves. The California canners and growers had just canned their entire year's worth of oh my product in sodium cyclamate, which, as they described it, burying it would require the, the space of a football field just to bury the stock of food they had Did they canned bury and it? lost. Did they bury and it? They, no, they actually sent it overseas, I, I believe, <laughs> I to South America. Uh, but they did go bankrupt in 1980. They never recovered from the loss. Uh, you talked about how around 1970, Cyclomate was banned in the U.S. Then in the 70s, the FDA said, you know, actually, we might ban saccharin. Um, and they got inundated. They got a million letters, just about a million letters. And I'm going to read from one of them that you print in the book. Um, it's by uh, Josephine Novak of Buffalo, New York. And she writes, please don't do this. And she says, quote, I live on the edge of Lake Erie, and I am, with no choice in the matter, obliged to drink water which has been heavily polluted, sometimes with known carcinogenic effluents. I am surrounded by carbon monoxide fumes and breathe urban industrial air. I am peripherally affected by smokers all around me. In fact, my life is one big cancer risk, which I am powerless to control. Surely then, if I decide to take one further, very minor risk of developing cancer, it must be my decision." People did not want saccharin banned, did they? No. In the words of one uh, member of Congress who'd served for over 20 years, and keep in mind, this is 1977, right? So a few things have happened in the previous 20 years. She had never seen an issue 
so activate her constituents to protest and write as did the proposed ban on saccharin. Now, you are kind of tough on artificial sweeteners. Uh, In your book, you say um, in Empty Pleasures that when you strip foods of their undesirable qualities, it's, quote, a form of socially acceptable bulimia, a way that the food itself can be eaten but not digested. And thanks to artificial sweeteners, um, it has been the most popular way of dealing with our national eating disorder over the last 50 years. That doesn't sound like you think we've made a very good bargain. (laughs) I think for individuals in the middle of a food system that's incredibly complicated, right, small amounts of most things that you consume are fine. And when I wrote the book, I had a lot of encouragement to write something that was just very critical of artificial sweeteners. And instead, I wanted to tell the balanced story. But what I found on balance is that, you know, understanding how to moderate one's desires in the midst of consumer options is a very important and difficult part of reaching maturity, right, of living in balance with yourself, your skin, your planet. And so I do think in their own, what may seem small to some people, but really not small, not small when you consider the messages that bombarded Americans for a good 50 years about why do without, why not have it, why not indulge yourself right now. And that led to purchasing something Mm -hmm. and putting it into your body. And especially given the amplified sweetness. Now, I I really feel artificial sweeteners have made it much more difficult to simply eat when you're hungry and know what it even means to be hungry. Carolyn Thomas is author of the book Empty Pleasures, the story of artificial sweeteners from saccharin to Splenda. She is a professor of American studies and vice provost at the University of California, Davis. Carolyn, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. It's been really fun. Sugar. Oh, honey, honey. So as Thomas mentioned, the rollout of NutraSweet was very impressive, and it was managed by a CEO who was lauded for his work on it. He had to tamp down safety concerns, he had to make sure that the marketing was brilliant, which he did. But the launch of NutraSweet was neither the beginning nor the end of fame for this particular CEO, who had been in government before, and who would be again. In the 1980s, President Reagan appointed him as special envoy to the Middle East, where he met with the leader of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. And in 2001, when George W. Bush was inaugurated, the man who had helped launch NutraSweet, Donald Rumsfeld, became Secretary of Defense. We've got a link to Carolyn Thomas's book on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1.